When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Yeah, welcome back to heard tell i'm andrew donaldson thank you so very much for giving us the most precious thing you have your time as we do what we always try to do turn down the noise of the news cycle get to the information that matters don't talk about the things that don't matter if we can help it and try to discern our times as best we can talking to knowledgeable guests getting through all that caterwauling and trying to figure out what's really going on in the world and that also means listening to you so i got a couple different variations of the same question both on social media and on the email that's herdtellshow at gmail.com and herdtellshow on the twitter both we'd love to hear from you by the way and there was something along the lines of well you're constantly criticizing republicans lately aren't you ever going to talk about democrats again yeah that's fair Look, we just had an election and a lot of the narratives were about the Republican Party. So we've been talking about them a lot. Don't worry, we'll get back to our Democratic friends, our team blue friends. But let me explain just for a minute why that is. Frankly, it's a little boring. Now, our friends on Team Red probably aren't going to enjoy this part all that much. But I'm just going to tell you the truth as I see it as I sit here. Uh, we know what's going to happen mostly, God forbid, in the creek don't rise with the president and the president's party over the next two years. Look, Joe Biden's going to run for re-election. All that's noise. Unless something, God forbid, happens to him, he's going to run for re-election. Vice President Harris is going to be his VP nominee again. Just go ahead and chisel that one in stone unless something really catastrophic happens. And I hope it don't. Uh, I wish no ill will on any of them, and it's bad for the country. Let's let them stand for election. Let the people decide. But that's going to happen. So turn all that noise off. They're not going to switch out the VP and Biden's going to run. Also got another piece of news our Team Red friends aren't going to like. He's not going to be easy to beat. Oh, I know. It's doddering old Joe, Sheriff Joe. Look, I fell for that in 2020. I didn't think it'd be a good idea for him to run for president. I thought it'd actually be bad for the Democrats. He not only showed me wrong, showed a lot of other people wrong. And he won. Team Red, I need to explain something to y'all real quick because I know everybody's all excited about the new hotness. I know people are all excited about Ron DeSantis. I know folks are a little uh, fighting over what we're going to do now that pre former President Trump has announced that he's going to run. Let's just have some grown folk talk real quick about the lay of the political land right now, okay? President Biden was at his weakest at this midterm election, and y'all fumbled it, okay? I'm just telling you how it happened. A president with not great approval ratings with economic troubles, with historical and cyclical trends going against him, and you folks, the Republican Party, couldn't make any headway, and in fact lost ground when it came to the Senate, and you barely took the House. Looks like you're going to have about 219, you're going to have about three, four, five seat majority, something like that. 
That's not good. That's underperforming by anybody's measure. The Joe Biden you face in 2024 will not be the Joe Biden of the 2022 midterms. He doesn't have all three branches of Congress and full blame of what's going on. He's going to be running against a Republican House of Representatives. He's going to get to blame them for a lot of things. They're going to obstruct. They're going to investigate. They're going to do all sorts of things. And by the way, the way it's looking right now, and we just talked to our congressional friend, uh, Eric Garcia, about this from behind the scenes. Uh, McCarthy and crew in the House are going to have their hands full. They're going to have a hard time getting anything done. And it very much looks like him and his raucous caucus, we've been calling it a little bit playfully, may not exactly light up the scoreboard on getting things done. So President Biden's going to get a run against that, especially if it looks dysfunctional, especially if it gets ugly. That's going to be a plus for him. The presidency being an incumbent has tremendous advantages. Again, you get almost unfettered access to the press. You have all the trappings of office. You can kind of set the agenda in a lot of ways. You get to respond to world events. There's a lot of built in things to the incumbency. Also, we just mentioned it. There's the specter of Donald Trump. He's already announced for president, and that was a smart move in one way, is that now everybody that runs for the Republican primary looks like they're running directly against Trump because he jumped first. So you're going to have to deal with that, and that's going to be messy, and it's going to be ugly, and there's not going to be a nice, quick, clean resolution to that. And he very well may want to just play spoiler if he doesn't win the primary, which he shouldn't because he definitely can't win a general election. That's just the truth. Donald Trump isn't winning a general national election in the United States of America in any year going forward. So if you're President Biden right now, all things considered, with everything that's happened, everything that's gone against you, the historical cycles, you're sitting about as good as you probably could be sitting, all things considered. And a lot of it, frankly, though, wasn't your doing. It was Team Red shooting themselves in the foot with bad candidates, bad policy, and some really bad ideas. But, President Biden, you're still going to have to run for office. You're still in charge of the country. You're still going to be held accountable. So it's not all sunshines and rainbow. Predict a very interesting campaign. Having said that, and having given some praise to our president's uh, current situation, let me back up for just a second and set some ground rules that we've been talking about internally here. We're going to have to throw out a lot of the playbooks going into 2024. We're off the map on a couple things. For one thing, we have a failed a uh, former president who was voted out of office running for the presidency in a fashion that we haven't really seen since, you know, Grover Cleveland, if you want to go all the way that back. We just don't have president for what we're getting ready to see here. Not only is former President Trump running, several members of his former administration is running. Mike Pompeo is already running in all but declaration. And we've already talked at length about former Vice President Pence, who's had a who has had a campaign and waiting for quite some time now. He's doing the book tour, which will roll right into him running for president as well. So President, former President Trump's going to be running against some of his own former cabinet members. That'll be interesting. And then there's whoever else jumps in, the Ron DeSantis of the world and whoever else decides to get in this race. It's going to be fascinating. But let's learn one lesson from the midterm. This is a very different environment than we've ever been in before. So we're just going to have to all kind of learn together. We're going to have to all discern together, probably not prognosticate like we normally would and see how this thing plays out. That also means one more advantage to President Biden. He's the constant. He gets to sit as president, do his president thing and run the far more traditional campaign while everybody else tries to navigate the lunacy of this Republican primary we're getting ready to see. Now, strange things happen. Remember, 
President Biden was dead and buried and all of a sudden gets South Carolina within three weeks. He had that puppy wrapped up, cruised through the rest of the primary and then won the White House. So strange things happen. Primaries are hard fought and can end quickly or can get drug out longer than you ever thought. Let's not get in a hurry before we get to Iowa and Nevada and New Hampshire and the other early states. Let's just kind of see how this baby develops a little bit over the next year to 18 months. It's going to be a fascinating ride. It's going to be an interesting piece of history. Let's make sure we enjoy the moment and discern it as it goes so we don't end up looking silly in a year or two. More Hotel, right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell Show. Quick update on the story we've been covering. We talked about this with our buddy Eric Garcia earlier in the week. If you haven't listened to that interview, go back and check it out on our Good Talks playlist. Uh, Mitch McConnell got a challenge to his leadership from Rick Scott. Remember, we've been talking about this. Listen, Rick Scott spent the summer and fall basically getting owned by Mitch McConnell at every turn. First, back in the spring, remember, he released that ridiculous plan of his that everybody lambasted and was basically a gift to the Biden administration to rail against. Uh, McConnell got him twisted up over that. Then there was the incident over the summer. Remember, he was in charge of the Senate committee to get people elected to the Senate for the GOP. We see how that wound up. So remember back in the fall when he got caught being on a yacht over in Italy instead of being out trying to round up new GOP senators. You remember how that worked out? That leak, this is not my opinion, I got this source, that leak came out of McConnell's team as well, so he got embarrassed there. And, of course, the fact that now the blame game, everybody was trying to point at McConnell. McConnell's, well, what about Rick Scott? I had to step in and do his job for him. So Rick Scott talked uh, a couple people, including Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, to nominate him against Mitch McConnell, which is really funny because if Mitch McConnell hadn't turned the funding fire hose onto Ron Johnson, he wouldn't be a senator right now with his one point win. But nevertheless, they had this. And Mitch beating 36 to 10 with one person voting present. <sighs> Mitch McConnell has owned Rick Scott so much this week, he could pretty much take out collateral against the man. But this is going to be a continuing theory. He's going to be continuing to throw his side. Look, Rick Scott, like a lot of senators, thinks he ought to be president, not a senator, but it's slowly dawning on him that he's not going to be. Rick Scott is also one of the richest people in the U.S. Senate. So he's frustrated. He's got a lot of money, but he doesn't have a lot of power. He's making a lot of enemies, and nobody seems to really like him that much. Yes, he won some statewide races down in Florida, but this is kind of his ceiling, and he's not handling it well. Keep an eye on Rick Scott on Team Red in the Senate. He looks like he's going to be a problem for a while to come because his ambition has not been satisfied. But it sure looks like he's reached the ceiling of his talents. 
Those are dangerous people to have behind you, Cocaine Mitch. You know that already. Just something to keep an eye on going forward as the Republican minority in the Senate tries to navigate their future. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. We were talking about ricotta cookies. That's why we're both smiling. That's Sarah Montebano back on the show again, getting to be a favorite because she always brings good information. How are you, ma'am? Great to have you back. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Oh, same as last time. Uh, we are going to talk a little education. She's with the Alaska Policy Forum, also a Young Voices contributor, good friend of the program. She goes all the way back to the radio days. I had her on the radio before we were ever doing Herd Tell. So you're one of the OGs around here. How's that feel? <laughs> It feels good. Yeah, I remember fondly a compliment your mother gave me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, mom's probably listening. Hi, mom, because we're going to talk education today. My parents, let's just start right there. My parents were both career educators, so I I, I take these kind of things seriously. Um, and when the pandemic happened, I was the primary stay-at-home parent for my two youngest kids because our school district shut down and they stayed shut down. There was none of this back and forth. They kept They kept that puppy down for 13, 14 months, whatever it was. You've got some data now. This is really shocking numbers on what we did to our kids educationally for the COVID pandemic. Absolutely. Um, first of all, these numbers came out last week in the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Um, that was administered in 2022, earlier in January through March. Um, and so we're measuring three years of decline through a lot of that. Um, the most recent test was in 2019. Um, so, you know, 2020, 2021, a lot of schools were still closed. Um, and it's really uh, remarkable how poorly states did in mathematics, especially, but also reading. No states improved over this time span. It's really a question of man did they manage to keep their ground or did they decline uh, a lot? <laughs> and they declined a lot. I'm just looking over some of these preliminary numbers. I don't even honest to God, I don't even know where to really start with. <laughs> They're talking about kids losing years. Yes. Not semesters, not year. The average fourth grade math gains, they basically lost two years of education. Yeah. Yes. Eighth absolutely. Grade student, eighth grade students lost almost the equivalent of two years in mm -hmm. English scores. Like, I'm just, I don't even know where to start with this data set. I'm, I mean, you're compiling it. You sent me some of it. I was doing my prep. We're like, I don't even know where to start because just everywhere you look, it's bad. It really is. There's a, a, my area of expertise is Alaska, and I've been living and breathing this data since last week when it came out. And at least in Alaska, charter schools, really the really bright point where charter schools were outperforming uh, the traditional public schools and, you know, providing an outlet for students that are really struggling uh, and in helping them advance through that. They did decrease by a few points, at least in Alaska uh, since 2019, but they are overall holding way, way above where um, traditional public schools are. Um, and, and it's really remarkable that nationally, fourth grade math gains are back to where they were since in, in 2005. I mean, we've wiped out 15 years 
of progress there. And, you know, reading the same story, eighth grade reading, um, back down to 1998, uh, pretty much when these tests were inaugurated. Um, so it's, it's really remarkable um, what having all of this online learning, these school closures, not having a teacher around, uh, maybe parents aren't as involved in, in uh, the pandemic age. There's, there's a lot of people theorizing about what caused this, um, but it's all pandemic related. Yes, yeah, Sarah Montalbano joining us. Let's just get into it and we're just going to have to go there because there's no way around this. It's the remote learning. That's what changed mm -hmm. everything. Now here, there, but there's, it's too simplistic to say this is all remote learning's fault because no, it's not because there is a good portion of children in this country and a vast portion of college students that learn online just fine. Thank you very much. Now, I understand yes. kindergartners and primary, it's a little different. Let's be adults. Mm -hmm. But in and of itself, there's nothing wrong with remote learning. So let's just put that on the table. Yeah, We're online learning should always be an option. You know, a lot of kids, it works really well. It was being thrown into this so suddenly um, that really, really hurt students um, in, you know, the spring of 2020 when this all started happening. Let's start with that. Let's just go through it. Yeah. There was clearly most of these schools did not have a plan on how to do remote learning. They were doing it on the fly. I know for mm -hmm. a fact because I sat there and helped my children do it. It got to the point where I would literally tell them, like, whatever they do Monday, don't worry about it because Tuesday it's going to change because everybody's going to call and complain and they'll change it. And that's exactly what happened. They were not prepared. They didn't know what they were doing. It was scattershot once they did it. And then once they started doing it, they didn't, there was a lot of not adapting. Mm -hmm. Before I just bash everybody for that part of it, let's all be real clear here. I understand nobody saw the pandemic coming. I understand that it was something nobody really anticipated that we were going to shut the entire school system down basically nationwide. Even still, I believe crisis reveals things. I think this showed some real problems in the education system as far as flexibility and frankly, as far as prioritizing learning other other things, because when you went online and you just had to do the learning without all the other stuff, there's a bunch of people just couldn't do it. Let's just call it what it was. Oh, that's absolutely the truth. I mean, I think mathematics showed a lot of really painful decreases in uh, proficiency nationwide, mostly because mathematics is really difficult to teach online and to do well. Um, and that this practice that has to happen at home to hone your mathematics skills uh, just wasn't happening as much. Whereas reading is something that, you know, hopefully if, you, if you've if you got parents that are involved, um, you know, you're learning some reading skills outside of the classroom. Um, and, and it just, it, the pandemic really revealed that um, the public education system isn't working well for a lot of students, um, not just students that were unhappy online, but thriving in a regular public school. Uh, but it's just giving a lot of students the opportunity to tune out. And, and it's not an engaging education for them uh, in, in public schools or online. Um, so that's what I think we saw is a lot of school choice programs offered a way out um, for a lot of students during the pandemic um, to pick something that really works for them and their families. Right. And you mentioned school choice. So I want to go here because I'm a fan. Look, my kids have gone to both public and private school. I went to both public and private school. My two youngest are actually in public school now, but I believe in school choice. Not everybody has school choice. There's places where there mm -hmm. is no other option. They only have the public school Absolutely. option. So I think it's really important we point out here that we also found out you can't just say, OK, school choice is going to fix everything because it can't. And I've seen this on the right and we need to discuss that you can't just abandon the public schools because that's the only option for a lot of people. And I think too many people wrote that off. 
I think there's a lot of learning here to do of like, okay, I know we all have our favorites politically and policy wise and things that we really believe in. Hey, this policy is really going to work. We also got to understand we got a diverse country and those policies doesn't work everywhere. Is it fair to take that lesson away from this as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the lessons I draw from this data, at least, is that um, states with really strong public school early literacy, you know, advances programs um, that have had this for a long time, their public schools are doing really, really well despite this, um, in that it's not so much whether it is being online that is the cause, but that the teaching methods that we're, you know, forcing students through in traditional public schools maybe aren't working so well um, in, in any case. Um, so Florida really did well. Um, Mississippi really did well. They have uh, strong early literacy programs. Um, and in places like that, uh, you know, you, you obviously can't abandon public schools. That's not a good choice for a lot of people. And people shouldn't have to abandon public schools in order to get a good education for their children. Um, so that's one thing I'd like to see is see more states adopt these kind of reforms that'll actually, you know, teach students how to read before fourth grade and things like that. Yeah, Sarah Montabano joining us. There's a thread there that we have to touch on because, look, I believe that when you're talking about really tough policy stuff, you got to be practical, too. Absolutely. Florida, Alabama, those are those are warm weather states. Those are southern states. <laughs> it's just a fact. Part of this COVID thing, we know the winters were harder than the summers were. That's when you had mm -hmm. spikes. That's when you had trouble. You have kids basically stuck inside for longer periods of time. When you take away school and they go to the home environment, and especially when you have seasonal differences and you have weather differences. And there's other data here that you're pointing out in this data set. You start seeing economic differences mm -hmm. and things like this. I really think we need to have a long, hard conversation about how one size fits all education is just not going to work because you're seeing it here. Cold weather states, they perform differently than warm weather states. Higher income brackets, well, they can hire tutors. They have probably better Wi-Fi. Like, look, they have what? Mm -hmm. Look, West Virginia, they had to ride around in buses and set up Wi-Fi stations because nobody has Wi-Fi because there's no broadband in wide swaths. You can go 20 minutes out of a state capital in the United States of America and there's no broadband. Like, that's just a fact wow. of life in West Virginia. I, Alaska, there's wide stretches. We've where got there's, that <laughs> there's not even cell service, right? Mm -hmm. We've got to realize there's diversity issues here and quit with this one-size-fits-all, throw-money-at-it mindset I really take that away from that data says like all these divides are because you try to push a one size fits all. And then this is all the stuff that goes through the cracks. Absolutely. I mean, broadband was such a huge issue in Alaska. And that was, I think, one of the things that this pandemic money was uh, trying to fix is establishing enough Wi-Fi for students to be able to do any of this learning. But you can just really see this this one size fits all is not working. We're seeing that obviously um, higher performers are losing less, uh, lower performers that are, you know, already on the margins of not being able to do some of these skills. They're, they're dropping a lot and maybe they need more intensive intervention than the public school system can give them. Um, and that's, that's, it's absolutely the lesson to draw from this data is that a lot of states have really different situations um, and that legislation and policy need to be crafted to those situations.
Paramount Devon joining us. You talked about the early literacy. I want to come back to that again. Here's why. Because we know we spend more money on education in America per capita than just about anybody else, and we're getting less for the money. That's just the fact. Yes. Throwing money at education does not improve education. We've got all the data in the world. Let's all be grown-ups. Mm-hmm. However, you talked about those early literacy programs. There is data that those have an effect. Those are expensive, though. So yes. where do we start having the conversation of, yes, we're spending tons of money. There are some things in here that cost money that are worth the money to spend. It sure looks like from the data spe- set, especially that fourth grade and under, and then that fourth and fifth and sixth, that's kind of the tipping point where you get into the more advanced studies. And if you don't have the reading skills, you're not going to pick them up then because then you just get tidal waved with everything else, right? Fourth grade level and down literacy. We should probably just say, we know it's expensive, but we got the data. That's where we fire hose the money. Is that what you're seeing? That's absolutely what I see. It's so worth it to have these early literacy programs. And by the time that the NAEP exam is testing fourth graders, you know, students by third grade should be able to read because up into fourth grade, you're not uh, learning to read. You're reading to, to learn other materials in mathematics, history, social studies, um, any of these other fields. Um, and so, you know, students at that stage start falling farther and farther behind. And, and really, you know, a lot of assessments begin at third grade when you should be doing little check-ins throughout the year. And maybe that's expensive, but it is worth it to catch this early uh, and to be able to actually direct, you know, a lot of these programs have early literacy coaches that'll go to schools and train teachers in the science of reading. Um, There's, you know, intensive interventions that are expensive, but important for these schools that are really struggling. Um, So I think that's really where the bang for your buck comes from in education spending. Um, What we see a lot of is just growth in administrative and support staff, which are important, but not necessarily at the rates that they have been growing. Um, And so if you need to find the money somewhere, start looking there first. Yeah, Sarah Montabano. I'm gonna I'm gonna rant for just a second, but it's needed. Please do. That administrative and support staff level, you can look at any chart you want to, and it's basically a hockey stick graph. The amount, mm-hmm. the explosion and where all the money's going, it's not in classroom teachers. It's a reason why they take all that money, but I gotta spend more and more every year on getting Kleenexes in the classroom and pencils, right? It's all mm-hmm. going to this administration level. It's going to those folks that never darken the door of a classroom. I've got, I'm, this is real talk on this show, folks. Maybe this segment ain't for you. Let's just talk real. I got visceral anger at the fact we've spent so much money on those folks. And when COVID hit, no offense to them, and I don't mean them personally as human beings, their positions were worthless. Because now you have an in-classroom teacher in front of a camera trying to teach students. And those people are nowhere to be found. And they're making sometimes double what that in-classroom teacher is doing. Like, this is so broken and so backwards. I don't even know where to really start with that, but I know where the money's going. It's going to things that are not in the classroom, and the data in the classroom is showing that it's not going to the things in the classroom. Absolutely. I'm going to show you an article after. I'm going to send you this link. Uh, But the Reason Foundation did a study of where education funding and revenue has gone since 2002 up till 2020. Um, and supports services are have gone up, you know, in Alaska, support services are up 50% since 2002 after adjusting for inflation. So you can't say, well, inflation's whittling this away. Um, and when you start breaking it down into actual uh, by 
what they're doing. Uh, you're seeing, you know, school administration and, you know, general administration going up a lot. Um, it's, it's really remarkable how this has happened. And in, you know, Alaska, we are pretty notorious for having really expensive per pupil education next to really, really bad outcomes. In this NAEP results, Alaska, you know, fourth grade reading, we're down second to last nationwide ahead of only New Mexico. Um, and we're spending, you know, $18,000 per student. And, you know, a lot of it's going towards administration and, you know, buildings and, and things that are, you know, necessary, but not in the levels that we are funding them. Yeah, Sarah Montabano. I'll talk about my home state, who I love so much. You send me the data set on it. West Virginia has 78% basic or below basic mm -hmm. for fourth grade. We've always, West, I'm talking about West Virginia, we've always been at the bottom of every education. We're on the bottom of every list, just about, but we've always been on the bottom of it. Look, my parents were both West Virginia school teachers career-wide until they retired. My daughter's in college to be a teacher. She's probably going to be a teacher in West Virginia right now. What do you do with a state that's mostly rural, obviously poor, losing population, they're going to have trouble, you know, the, you're not going to have money to throw at the problem there. Mm -hmm. So now what do you do? Because when you see a number that, that, you know, nationally you're talking about two thirds and they're above that 78 basic or below lacking skills, no mastery of simple tasks like inference. Let's go back to what you just said. There's a tipping point in school education. I've heard my dad talk about this for years where you, they stop teaching you how to learn and then it's just adapt to what we're teaching you. So you learn it. And that lack of skill set is where you just start burying people and being unable to learn, not just for a grade or two, but for a lifetime. What do we do to fix that? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, I wish examples. I had. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Alaska's in the same boat with that. We've got 76% of fourth graders can't, you know, do these basic reading tasks or only show a little bit of mastery. Three out of every, every four students don't know how to read. And that's that's really remarkable. It's difficult in a rural state, especially with um, going online for COVID. There was a lot of chronic absenteeism, and we were talking about this before we got on the air. Um, but there's, you know, chronic absenteeism has always been an issue in Alaska, but it really spiked due to the pandemic. Um, so the first thing is trying to get you know, children's butts back in their chairs in the classroom. Um, and then so much of this is coming down to teaching techniques. Um, you know, if you're trying to teach reading with the whole language method where you're looking at a word and guessing from pictures and, and all these different things, you know, you're not going to learn to read as well as if you start sounding it out and you, you're using phonics. Um, and so that's where these early literacy programs come in for, uh, you know, public school systems. And then the last thing I would say is West Virginia has opened up in 2022 this year, uh, the HOPE Scholarship Program, which is an education savings account. Um, opening more school choice options like that for students will help them really try to escape these really failing schools um, and, and teachers who either don't care or aren't uh, putting in the necessary work to get them where they are. Um, and so, you know, expanding school choice options, I think, should be an important key to that, but it's not going to solve the problem entirely.
We have Sarah Monteblano joining us. You mentioned the teachers, so let's take up for the teachers. Because, again, I, I think what happened in the pandemic for the most – and you had some bad teachers. You always have a few bad ones. I'm talking about the majority of the most of them. I think the teachers really got screwed because I think the administrative level wanted to put all the blame on them for the problems. Mm -hmm. They're getting it from the parents. They're in a situation they've never planned to be. I think the teachers got it on all sides, to be fair to the teachers. And we've got the stats now. Leaving in droves. They're having a hard time recruiting teachers. We can't find enough teachers just about anywhere right now. How do we solve that problem? Because, again, just throwing money at it ain't and look, I know it, look, every no politician is going to come out and say teachers make good a good living. It's not a bad living when you know you work nine ten months out of the year, get weekends and holidays. Let's you're doing okay. I agree, you may be a little underpaid depending on your location. It's not just a pay thing. How do we get that profession, that career path that used to be a revered thing? It no longer mm-hmm. is. Some of that's cultural. What do we do about this teacher shortage? Because you and me can, and whoever, we can talk policy all day long. If we don't have enough teachers and teachers in the classroom to implement policy, it ain't going to matter. Huge question, but there's a few parts I want to touch on. Uh, One of the things I personally think would help a lot is making it easier to become a teacher and not saying we're lowering standards, but, you know, I'm saying, you know, look, I got a bachelor's in computer science. Why can't I just go take the teacher licensure exam to go be an AP's computer science teacher? Uh, why why do I have to go back to college to get teaching degrees, which, you know, are a large part um, politically saturated with certain uh, teaching methods and stuff like that? Why do I have to go back, you know, if, if I'm an expert in my field uh, to get that? So reforming teacher licensure to make it easier for also cultural and community leaders to do some teaching in schools. That's one thing uh, we'd like to see more of in Alaska. It's it, That's a huge part uh, to it. Don't make teachers, potential teachers, go back to college because a lot of people are just going to say, no, no, that's not worth it. Um, and, and it's not worth it also because of, you know, how teachers are treated. And I think administrators really threw teachers under the bus in a lot of ways um, during this pandemic. And they were also the most visible part. You know, you're not watching administrators give online lessons to your kids. You're watching the teacher. Um, and so that's that's a huge thing to make teaching a respectable profession. And it doesn't need to be necessarily more high paying than it is. Um, this is a little wonkish but I'd like to mention it anyway. Um, Reforming the way teachers' pensions work so that they are more portable between districts and jobs would help a lot for teachers to not feel like, well, if I leave this district, my pension's back down to a really low level. I'm being penalized for movement this way. Um, And that would help bring in teachers from other states um, to have that. And then also recognizing teacher licenses from other states uh, would help a great deal. Yeah, Sarah Montabano joining us. I, I found this out firsthand because I went to find out what I needed to do to substitute teach when I first left the military. Mm-hmm. You only needed 30-some hours to get a substitute teaching. Absolutely. But there was people with master's degrees, and one guy I know that was actually a doctor who did a text proxy with me. He's like, no, I just have a substitute licensure because I don't want to fool with it. He's a doctor. Yeah. He's like, no, Why I is he not it. qualified to teach but yeah, high he, school he's like, I don't want. He's like, I don't want to fool with it, so I just get a substitute and I help out when I want to. And we were doing a test proctor thing, which you didn't even need that. We were just, you know, watching sixth graders take a test for their standardized testing, stuff like this. Let's go back big picture for a second, because this is going to come off harsh, but I want to go there because it's important. What did the pandemic see? I think crisis reveals things. I think crisis tells you the truth. 
because it strips away all the nonsense. So if we look at the pandemic and we look at people's actions, not their words, I think a lot of people told us exactly what kind of education system we had. And I think, and I've talked to my children who went through this, who very much struggled. They found out that they were cogs in a wheel. That's how they felt. Absolutely. That's a cultural thing that's not going to change. I think the teachers feel like they got screwed on all sides, and I think they've got a legitimate beef there. Mm -hmm. I think what we found out in the United States of America in 2022, 2021, 2020, we've said our schools are about education, but our actions and the way we conducted ourselves during the pandemic said it's not about education. It's a jobs program and a daycare center. And that's how we funded it. And that's how we treat it. And that's what we expect from it. And mm -hmm. that's why we acted the way we acted. If I went to a court of law, I think I can prove that. I don't think I can prove that we're all about education after this. Do you disagree? I mean, that's my opinion. What do you think? Because that's what I drew is like we, we revealed what we really thought about education in America. Absolutely. Education right now does not teach students uh, how to be critical thinkers, how to be creative, um, things like that. It's really, you know, I, I, I was great at school. I enjoyed my time in public schools, but it's not a place for students that are really looking to create these like next century jobs and innovations and things like that. Um, you know, states need to start thinking about um, re reforming their, their programs to actually put some emphasis on this. Um, and, and to really bring back rigor too is, is a huge part of it. I mean, I look at you know, college entrance, entrance exams from 19, 20, or 30, and there's not a single question on there I could answer. And I consider myself fairly well-educated. Um, and so that's that's something I, I see a, a huge problem with is just it's not rigorous. It is being treated like a daycare center. And then, you know, when you say, well, we're not going to have the daycare center, we're going to make you guys uh, do this daycare center. And then we're going to still try and teach. I, it's really no wonder that scores dropped so much. Yeah. And again, let's just call it what it is, because back then the test scores didn't determine your funding. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what that's where the the paradigm really shifted. But we'll get into that some other time. Sarah Montabano, this is going to be a generational problem, so it's going to be a generational fix. We're going to be talking about this a lot, but I appreciate you. Hey, this is one of those you went to me. It's like, hey, we need to talk about this. So I appreciate it. I hey made my show prep easy. This is something we're going to be talking about a long. Look, I've, I and again, this is personal because I see this in my own kids, yeah. where you know my own. My youngest daughter is like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us. And they weren't because yep. in the state of North Carolina, it got out. Somebody leaked it that, you know, they're scaling all the zeros to 50. So everybody passes. Mm -hmm. The kids are smart. They know that. And she's, you know, this is an integrity problem. I got a parent out of her, but she wasn't wrong. She's like, why should I study? They're not allowed to fail us. Mm -hmm. The kids are smart. They, they know what we did to them. And Absolutely. we're going to have ramifications for a generation on dealing with what we did to these kids. Mm -hmm. During COVID, even I, and I understand there's a pandemic. I look, I'll give you the first couple of weeks. Nobody knew what was going on. I get it. But we're going to be reckoning with this for a very long time. I'll give you the last words. I've been talking a lot here. But when you looked at this data set and you looked over, just what do you take away as to what we need to do now looking forward? What's the next thing to look at? What's the next thing to advocate for? Do you think? Big question. Three parts. Um, first of all, we can't let this happen again, um, especially not to the same cohort of kids that are still going through, but especially, um, especially those kids. But it just, it, we cannot either be so unprepared for an online transition 
or do it at all because I think there's a lot of kids that just cannot or will not learn uh, through a screen, um, especially younger kids. I mean, you're asking them to sit down in front of a screen for hours and that's that's just not gonna happen. Um, the biggest thing to improve public schools are these sort of literacy improvement programs. Um, right now we need to catch up and that's going to be really stressful for, you know, older kids who have been living with these, um, living at this level of, of proficiency for a while now. Um, but that's something that in order for colleges to be ready, for trade schools to be ready, you know, students need to learn how to read and have base, basic math skills. Um, so there needs to be some substantial remedial time on that. Um, and then finally, we need to continue to improve school choice options nationally. Um, states have control over these. Um, so, you know, get as much legislation introduced as you can while parents are still really dissatisfied and, and just try to improve this learning loss however you can. Students that learn best elsewhere should try to make that jump, um, you know, as soon as possible or at least make incremental changes like hiring a tutor, or taking some classes at a different school. Hey, all those non-certified teachers, you put a tutoring program together, that might be something you want, somebody might want to look into. That's free. I'm not even going to charge you for that one. Just check it out. <laughs> Sarah Montabano, she's one of our favorites. Um, we're going to keep having you back on a host of topics because you're great at this. We appreciate you. But until we get you back, let folks know where they can follow you, where they can keep up with you and what you got going on. You will be able to find my upcoming report on www.alaskapolicyforum.org. Uh, that's where I do all my education work uh, in Alaska. You can also find me on my Young Voices talent page and on Twitter at Sarah Montalbano, and the O is a zero. Yep, it's a, which messes me up every single time I do it, quite <laughs> frankly. But, uh, Sarah Montalbano, nah, it's not your fault. Hey, every, you ought to try doing my Twitter handle on Radio Hits. That one's a real, I didn't think about that one ahead of time, four for the fire. You, you spell it and then there's a numeric, there's no good way to do it. So I messed myself over on that one. Sarah Montalbano, always enjoyed talking, my friend. We'll do it again real, real soon. Thank you. Yes, Ma'am, thank you. tell let's end on a good note love doing good stories to end the note on let's go down to the delta mississippi today but i got this uh link from a really good follow on twitter uh soul foodie that's p-h-o-o-d-i-e soul foodie great twitter account if you're a food person uh you can figure out what kind of food they prefer uh but this is from mississippi today marco twist mangum didn't just want to create the grocery store her hometown desperately needed. She wanted to bolster the Delta's long-struggling food system. Enter Pharmacy Marketplace. That's Farm, F-A-R-M, F-A-R-M, you know, clever marketing there. Pharmacy Marketplace, a neighborhood grocer that isn't just the first store in decades to offer web shoppers fresh meat and produce, but also a steady marketplace for small-scale farmers to sell their crops. A huge amount of food waste goes in the Delta 
because everything is so sparsely populated, she said. No supermarket businesses is going to contract you to buy 20 pounds of tomatoes every couple of weeks, but the pharmacy marketplace can, giving the regions struggling small-scale farmers a more reliable income and the people of Webb, that's the town down in Mississippi, access to produce without driving a half hour to the nearest grocery store. The Mississippi Delta may be known for its fertile soil, but it's a major farm operation largely grows soy and corn for animal feed rather than produce the food the region's population actually eats. There are few industries and jobs outside of agriculture in most Delta counties. The poverty rate is between 30 and 40 percent. It's also covered what the USDA agriculture calls rural food deserts, low-income tracts where a third of the population lives more than 20 miles from the nearest large grocer. Mangum hopes she's creating a pharmacy marketplace will become a model for other communities. Webb is home to just under 400 people and is 97% black, according to the census data. Before pharmacy, shoppers seeking poultry, steak, fresh fruit, and veggies needed to drive 25 miles to the Clarksdale Walmart or 18 miles to a super value over in Charleston. It saves people money and instead of investing in gas, they're able to purchase more groceries, said Webb Mayor Michael Pletz. The new store is in the heart of the town's main street, meaning many citizens can also walk there. Clad in a green apron and a wide smile, Magram's mother is one of the store's workers. The community is rallied around the store, desperate for it to be successful and volunteering their time so the neighbors have a reliable place to purchase healthy food. Mangrum lives in Atlanta part-time and is regularly in web to manage the shop and run a 150-acre farm. Her nonprofit, In Her Shoes, aids women experiencing homelessness in Georgia and offers farm training in Mississippi. The shop is operated under the nonprofit USDA Grants Fund, and the pharmacy market had a soft opening back in October, but it couldn't come at a better time. The local Dollar General, which may not have fresh food, but plenty of essentials for folks, had burned down just weeks before. Dollar General said in a statement they were still assessing that store's future, and Mangrum has added more household essentials to the store's inventory to help make up for the loss of the community's only major retailer. Feeding America, a national food bank organization, reported that 31% of Tallahatchie County's black community was food insecure in 2020, the latest, latest data available. That rate measures access to food between finances, transportation, and physical grocery stores. Easiest food to get in web for pharmacy open was, of course, frozen dinners, pizzas, chips, and candy. So Magram's vision isn't only about giving the Delta community a more reliable food system and economy, but also making it healthier with access to unprocessed, nutrient-dense foods. On a recent Friday afternoon, Dimitri Starks, 54, was browsing the new grocery store with her 86-year-old mother. Starks grew up there and now lives in Memphis. Hadn't been to a neighborhood grocery-like pharmacy in the area since she'd been a child. They had all closed up and people had moved out. Much of Webb's population is aging, and it gives Starks peace of mind that her mother no longer has to drive so far to get the items for supper. It's a symbolism of growth and rebuilding the community, Starks said, and it's helping bring some type of stability. Lonzo Wright is in and out of the shop regularly, able to easily get supplies for his burger and fries restaurant called Zell's that's down the street. When Pletz, the mayor, had a steak, he could just walk a few minutes to the store and buy what he needs that night for dinner. Quote, since the day it opened, it's been a blessing to the community, the mayor said. Magram has other goals in mind. A local poultry producing facility Delta Farmers can use so the store's poultry is coming from the community and further creating jobs. She's busy writing proposals for more grants. And she's partnering with the nearby community college's workforce training program so that students can get retail job experience at the store, earning $10 an hour. It's better than my first retail job. I got $5.25 an hour and got bumped up to $5.35 an hour. I thought I was rich. Granted, that was 20 plus years ago. There are three participants so far. 
The store is open seven days a week. On November 1st, it began accepting EBT benefits, which is great for both the store and a community that heavily relies on them. People want to shop and work where they live. It's simple, yet not the norm across the Delta's rural towns. People want to see the program succeed, she said. It's not just a grocery store. It's the town's quality of life. Love these stories. Love highlighting stories. People making a difference in their community, trying to do something good, also rising up a business, but helping people along the way. We'll highlight those stories every chance we get. That'll do it for Hurtel. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. We've done whole shows and segments just based off what you wanted to talk about. Maybe you had a criticism we needed to answer. You thought there was a story that wasn't getting covered or covered correctly. We've loved to hear from you. Hurtelshow, gmail.com. You can send us an email. Hurtelshow on the Twitter. You can direct message us and or just reply to any of the major uh, things we put on there, like clips, like notices when new episodes are out. So make sure you're following us on Twitter. That'd be great. Also, uh, you can follow all our guests and myself on our social media. It's on the screen on the YouTube pages. Make sure you're subscribed on that YouTube page. There's extras there that's nowhere else. The iTunes, Spotify, and all the podcasting platforms, iTunes, Spotify, anything you can get a podcast on, we're on it. We're even on a couple of Indian language ones that I can't pronounce, but I know we're on there because I see the data. Y'all listening in India, we love you. Appreciate y'all. We're worldwide here, you see. And I got a little bit of an announcement. Uh, back when we first started doing Hertel, I was pitching somebody who was helping me learn the production side. And he was showing me a uh, podcast of a friend of ours that had 50,000 downloads. And we made the remark, like, well, we're not going to do those kind of numbers, but uh, we'll see what we can do with it. Well, yesterday we crossed 50,000 downloads. So thank you all very much. That's why it's so important that you subscribe, even if you watch on YouTube or another platform. If you could subscribe and leave a rating and a comment on any of those podcasting platforms, that would be great. That lets other people know that Herdtel is worth checking out. Make sure you share us on your social media. That's the only advertising outside of our own social media we do. That's how we've been growing. It's all been you folks. And as long as you're listening, we'll keep doing it. Thank you so very much for giving us the most precious thing you have, your time. So until we talk to you again on whatever way you're watching, listening to Herd Tell, wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed, and we will talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.